The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We are doing our deacon ordination today. And so I wanted to do a special message for you and take a short break from the, the Gospel of John and ordain the deacons and talk about something that I think is of pivotal importance for you to understand, for all of us to understand. What if I told you that there was a secret to spiritual growth that most American Christians did not understand? What if I told you that? What if I told you that, that, that there was a catalyst for your spiritual life that if you do not grasp this, you will never arrive as a, quote, mature Christian? You will never do it. Well, there is. What I am talking about is discipleship in the local church. Discipleship in the local church. I want you to look at verse 13 of Ephesians 4. This is one of the great passages in Scripture on the church. And Paul says that the end game of the church is this. Look at verse 13. He says, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And then look at this phrase, to mature manhood. The Greek word for mature is teleos. It means to be perfected or fully grown. Oftentimes, the Christian life is compared to the life cycle of a person. You know, you have babes in Christ. You have infants in Christ. You have children in Christ. And then you have here what Paul says is a fully grown adult, somebody who has arrived at a level of maturity. And then look at this next phrase, to the measure of the stature. He's talking about somebody that is fully mature. Uh, you, you think of a 26-year-old person. They've arrived in terms of the level of their development. And that's what Paul has in mind here. He says, you have somebody that has arrived in terms of how they've grown. Isn't that what you want for your life? Do you want to just be a baby Christian? You know, goo goo gaga, you know, I'm going through the motions. Do you want to be a baby Christian or do you want to be a mature Christian? I think everybody would say, I want to be a mature Christian. I want to grow. I want to be sanctified. I want to be all that Christ has for me in the church. Now, how you get there is the last phrase. Look at this. The fullness of Christ. The fullness of Christ. Christ's likeness is the gauge of your maturity. The more you are like Christ, the more mature you are. The more that you think like Christ... The more that you think like Christ, the more that you speak like Christ, the more that you live like Christ, the more that you model Christ, the more mature you are. So the goal in the church is to conform you to Christ, to lift up Christ and say, everybody, let's be like him. Let's think like him. Let's live like him. And let's all arrive together at this level of maturity. Notice that emphasis that Paul has on the we at the very beginning of verse 13. It's not the singular you. He says it's the we until we all arrive at this level of maturity. His point is, is that we need the we. You need the church. You can't pull this off on yourself. When I became a Marine officer. You know what they didn't do? They didn't say, here's some links to some YouTube videos. 
for you to work this out in your garage. And you can practice marching and you can, you know, you pull up, put up a pull-up bar and you can, you can practice doing pull-ups and, and you can become a Marine officer on your own. No, 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 no. They send you to a place called Quantico and you take a plane to Reagan or Dulles and a school bus picks you up and takes you to OCS and you get off that bus and they shave your head they give you a bunch of shots, and they say, look, now we own you. And they put these drill instructors there, sergeant instructors, the best of the best that the Marine Corps has to offer, and you go through this process with a platoon, another group of young aspiring officers, and you're up at 4 a.m. together every day, and they have some, they have a, an exchange program with the British Royal Marines. They would have this Royal Marine out on the, this uh, table every morning at 4.30 in the morning just crucifying us in terms of PT. And you go through this together, and there's this shared hardship, and there's this mutual encouragement, and there's this coming alongside one another and, and leading one another, and prior enlisted Marines saying, hey, this is how you, this is how you clean your rifle. This is how you, you make your rack. And, and all of this is, is together. It's not, a, it's not a solo exercise. And so when graduation happens, you march across the parade deck together, Together you've arrived as Marine officers. And that's what people expect. But guess what? That only happens in Quantico. Just like you only make disciples in the church. There was a, a gym in the 1970s. This is where weightlifting started called the Venice Beach Gold Gym. And if you wanted to be a power lifter, a bodybuilder, if you wanted to get into weights, that's where you went. People made their ways across the world to this one gym. The idea is if I go to that gym, I will be made strong. I will be encouraged. And of course, Schwarzenegger and a guy named Columbo, uh, all sorts of people were coming to this gym, and they said that the energy in the gym was palpable. That when you go there, you expect to find strong people, and it just kind of rubs off on you. That's what the church is supposed to be. You come into the life of the church, and it's Christ's likeness everywhere around you. Everywhere around you. And of course, that, that idea of a gym is not too far off what Paul is saying here in this passage, where he says the church is like the body. It's a body. And each member of the church is a different part of the body. And what happens is, is when you do a full body workout, the whole body gets strong. If you go swim 10,000 meters, if you um, go run a marathon, if you put your body underneath a squat bar, your whole body is focused on that, on that one activity. Your feet, your legs, your arms, your head, your torso, all of it is focused towards that one activity. And then in so doing, the whole body gets exponentially stronger. And Paul, over and over again, in Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Colossians, Paul over and over again says that's the church, is that it's the body of Christ coming together, Christ is the head, Christ is Lord, and Christ leads us, and together we become mature, we become strong. And I have a feeling that so many American Christians are trying to do solo Christianity outside the church. You ever, you ever drive along and you pass a trucker and he's got like one of those little hand exercises, you know, that he's doing as he's driving the truck? Have you ever seen that? I asked Grace Hand, she said, I've never seen that. Maybe it's just me, but, you know, so many Americans are like, like that trucker. It's like, are you really going somewhere? Are you really getting that much stronger just doing your little hand exercise? No. What you need is the immersive experience 
of the gym, of the church. And that's what the church is. And to do that, though, and, and this sounds foreign, I know, to, to so many of you. And, and the, the reason it sounds foreign is because so many churches have abandoned completely this idea of making disciples. And so many churches have, have essentially become country clubs. So there, there is a problem with the church, and that's why the whole parachurch ministry thing started in the, in the 20th century. So there's been a massive, massive issue with the church. But if the church figures this out, and you plug yourself then into the life of the church, the byproduct is, is that you are going to be this strong, mature Christian that Paul's talking about. You are going to be fully grown. You are going to grow up into this full stature that is Christ. So how does this work? Um, one, other, one other thing that, that I might add. In my experience, this is, this is something that, that is intuitive, if you logically thought about this, that you would understand this. But the stronger that a church is, the stronger that a church is, the more mature its individual disciples are. And that, that's always true. Think about it. If you were to show up at the church of Ephesus, what do you expect to find? Strong disciples, mature disciples. If you showed up at 10th Presbyterian with, with Jim Boyce, what do you expect to find when you walk in? Christ-like disciples. You show up at Grace Church or a Parkside Church, what do you expect to find? Strong disciples because of the level of the church that's, that's there. So how do we get there? How do we arrive at this level of Christian maturity? How do we do this as a church? How do you do this as individuals? Let's look how Paul lays it out here in Ephesians 4. Look at verse 1. Paul says, I therefore, and this is based on all the, the doctrines of grace that he's laid out previously, and he's writing this from a Roman prison. He says, a prisoner for the Lord. He says, I urge you, I, I, I call you, I come alongside and I call you, Ephesian believers, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He says, because you've received salvation by grace through faith alone, as a measure of honor and a measure of gratitude, you are to, to walk in a way that is honoring to this call. And that word walk simply means the pattern of your life. Going back all the way to the Old Testament, uh, walking is... is is the general conduct of your life, right? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, right? It's, it's how you live. Uh, Paul says, Ephesians 5.2, walk in love. Ephesians 5.15, look carefully then how you walk. It's, it's how you do this. And what Paul says here, notice the you. I urge you. The you there in the original Greek text is plural, it's, it's a Texas y'all, in other words. It, it's a y'all. He says, I urge y'all to do this. In other words, it's for the church to do this. This isn't a call here to Lone Ranger Christianity. It's a call for you to live a life that is pleasing to God in the context of one another in the context of the church. In other words, he's saying, get into the gym, get into the church, and, and let's get busy. Now, to do this right, you have to have a certain attitude about you, right? If you're gonna train to be a Christian disciple, you have to have the right attitude. Attitude is everything. Didn't your teachers teach that in school? Attitude is all the difference in the world. And when you approach this aspect of discipleship in the church, the attitude that you are to have is the attitude of Christ. Look at this in verse 2. Paul says, you are to do this with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And then he says, verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What he's talking about there, what he's describing is Christ. 
He's saying, this, when you come into the church, this is the mindset that you are to have. Literally, when you are driving up to the building, when you are driving up for fellowship, this is the mindset that you are to have. First, uh, the first two relate to just positively speaking, how you project yourself. You are to have humility. Humility deals with not believing your own press, not thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Paul says in Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And of course, he goes on to describe the humility of Christ in the incarnation. Then Paul says, you are to have gentleness, Gentleness means not being overly impressed with your own importance and not relating to people in a manner that is overbearing. When you have pride and and a proud person and somebody that thinks that they're really great, did you ever have a professor that just thought they hung the moon? How did they treat people? They, They were discounting what students said. They they derided students. Whenever you have egotism, you have somebody that is inevitably going to treat somebody poorly and harshly. And Paul says that's not to be you. He says in verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So you're to have this humility, this gentleness in how you relate to people. And then he says this. This, is, this. this I find is really remarkable. He says, you need to understand that you're also going to be tested by others in the church. You know, sometimes people tell me, I don't want to go to church because there's hypocrites there. Or there's people that are, that are difficult there. That's the point. When else are you going to be able to display patience and endurance? Did Jesus just, just pick disciples that he knew would be easy to deal with? Are you easy to deal with? Has Jesus been patient with you? He has. The only way that you grow is by being challenged. We're such comfortable people in the 21st century. You know, even the thermostat has to be moderated just perfectly to my liking, right? I mean, everything has to be perfect. I don't like the experience to to bother me at all. Well, guess what? You're never going to grow then. The only way that you're going to grow is by being challenged and by displaying the fruit of the Holy Spirit, by being patient, by being gracious, by being forgiving, by being merciful. So Paul says, look, you are going to have to practice patience. Patience can be defined as maintaining tranquility under duress. Maintaining tranquility under duress. Have any of you ever tried to pack a van before a family vacation? That is patience, right? It's, it's, it's being not allowing yourself to be riled when things are going awry. You remember Jesus in the boat? And the disciples are, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And Jesus is there sleeping. He's patient. He's patient with them. Even after he, he gets up and calms the storm. And then he says, you're patient, and then you bear with one another in love. And Christ, above all, attributes of God has displayed the love of God to us. This sacrificial love, this agape love. And, and Paul says, you are to do this with other believers. You know, 1 Corinthians 13, 7, he says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. That means in love, you bear with other people's deficiencies. And in so doing, what you're doing is you're practicing the love of Christ. We've forgotten this. We've said, I want church to cater to me, and it has to meet my demands. But in reality, the, the mindset that you should have is, I am going to display love, and I'm going to bear with babes in Christ. Because not everybody is as mature as you are. And by the way, people are probably bearing with you too. 
So you are to come and you are to bear with people in love. And he says, verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice that word maintain. This is where we have gotten all mixed up, talking about racial reconciliation and and church unity and ecumenicism, all of it. You never create unity. You don't create reconciliation. That is what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit is what unifies the people together. What your job is to do is to maintain the unity that the Holy Spirit creates. You see the difference? Your job isn't to create it, it's to maintain it. The Holy Spirit has done his part. Your job is to not screw it up. Your job is to, to, to not rock the boat and create division. You're never told in the New Testament to create unity. It's always to maintain the unity. And it's been uh, created by the Holy Spirit. And look at this phraseology, the bond of peace. That word bond is the same word for sinu. Sundesmos. Think about a sinew, uh, yeah, a tendon. You know, it connects muscles and bone. This is, he's saying, the Holy Spirit has connected us together so that we are no longer individual parts, but we are connected intricately together in this Holy Spirit bond. And Paul says in Colossians 3.14, he says, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together. Same word. Sundesmos, everything together in perfect harmony. So the love of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit is what binds us together. Doesn't matter what your ethnicity is or what nationality you are. If you are a born again Christian, you can go anywhere in the world and you can find another Christian and you are bound together with them by the Holy Spirit. That's what's so remarkable about Christianity. So having this mindset of Christ, we are to work to maintain this unity. Question, what is the devil trying to do in every single church? The devil is trying with all of his might to destroy the unity because then the effectiveness of the church is lost. So the devil is working overtime to destroy unity and we have to be working. It's, it's, a, it's a present participle. You be working all the time to maintain this unity in the bond of peace. So that's the attitude that you have to have to do this right. You have to have that gentleness. You have to have that humility. You have to be able to be patient, to bear with one another. And you have to work overtime to maintain this unity. Now let's dive deeper into the unity. This is what makes the church the discipleship hub that it is. This is the dynamism of the church. This is why the church is the discipleship hub. What Paul says next. Look at verse 4. He says, There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul uses that word one seven times. And seven is, of course, the perfect number. This is the perfect unity. And these are simply seven declaratives. He doesn't even say there is in the Greek text. He just says one He says, there's one body, there's one spirit, there's one call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and in all. Notice also verse 4, deal with the work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 4 deals with the work of the Holy Spirit, of what the Holy Spirit does in your life. He places you in the body. He baptizes you into the body. He indwells you. He calls you. Verse 5 
deals with the work of Christ. One Lord, one faith, one Christian baptism. And verse 6 deals with God the Father. So point being, it's a Trinitarian unity. All three persons of the Godhead are at work in creating this unity. Now here's the nature of the unity. Here's the nature of this discipleship hub of the church. First, Paul says it's one body, one body. And this is Paul's favorite metaphor, that and the family, to describe the church. And this is Paul's first, if you think about it, this is Paul's first experience of the church. In Acts chapter 9, when Jesus confronted Paul on the Damascus Road, do you remember what Jesus said to Paul? He said, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? He's like, what are you talking about? How am I persecuting you, Lord? And what did Jesus mean by that? He's, you're persecuting my body. And I so closely associate myself with my people, they're my body, that the same as persecuting the body is persecuting Christ. So Paul goes, oh, so the church is your body. Paul never forgot that. So Romans 12, 5, he says, we are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. He says to the Colossians in Colossians 3.15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. And then he says there's one spirit. There's one Holy Spirit that indwells each and every Christian. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12.13, we are all made to drink of one spirit. He says in a in Ephesians 1.13, that we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And what that means, this is really important for the church as a discipleship hub, it means that the same internal principle is inside every single Christian, and that is God the Holy Spirit. This is what unites us together. When I used to watch, as a kid, with my mom, Anne of Green Gables, uh, they would talk about being kindred spirits. And what they meant by that is we love the same things. You know, we, we, we share these commonalities. We're kindred spirits. Well, guess what? In Christianity, it, it's much more than a kindred spirit. It's the Holy Spirit indwelling you and forming Christ in you. And he's doing the same thing and the Christian next to you. And that means that your experience of the Christian life will be similar to their experience of the Christian life. It doesn't matter where you go because there's one spirit. And then he says, there's not only one spirit, there's one hope of the call to which we've been called, that every single Christian has this hope that, that the Holy Spirit has given, given them in their life. Paul earlier said in Ephesians 1.18, he says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What's the hope? He says, which are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints. He says, the hope that every Christian has ultimately is on heaven. If that's not your hope, you're not a Christian. If your hope is not to be with the Lord, forever and ever in a new heavens, new earth, then, then I don't know what Christianity you've been introduced to, but it's not biblical Christianity. Paul says every Christian has that hope. We're all cloud gazers. We're all looking to the skies expectantly for the Lord to return. We all have that one hope. And then we all have, in terms of Christ, one Lord. There is one Lord, one curios, Paul says in Romans 14, 8, he says, if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 2, he says, we call upon the same Lord. Call upon the same Lord. We are the Lord's. Every believer is submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in his or her life. That's what unites us together. There's one Lord. There's one master. 
Paul says in Ephesians 6, we're, we're doulosses, we're bond servants, we're, we're slaves of Christ. And that means that we are all obeying his call on our life. The way that you live is not by saying, this is what I want to do. This is what I'm going to do with my business. This is what I'm going to do with my college education. This is who I'm going to marry. You ask the question, what does the Lord want me to do with your life? And every Christian has that mindset. And there's one faith. And by this, Paul means the object of what we believe. Lots of people have faith. But he's saying, this is the objective reality that we actually believe, that we share together. In Acts chapter 6, Luke records that the apostles chose men who were, quote, obedient to the faith. In other words, the, those first prototypical deacons, they all believed the same things. They all held to the, the deity of Christ, to the, the Trinity, that God the Father is God, that God the Son is God, that God the Holy Spirit is God. They all held to the fact that Christ died on the cross for sinners. They all held to a little re- resurrection from the grave. They all held to the Lordship of Christ. Paul says, Galatians 1.23, that he preached, quote, the faith. And Jude says that there is a, quote, faith once for all delivered to the saints. It's that we all believe the same basic things that make up the Christian worldview. And then there's one baptism. There's one Christian baptism. And baptism is first a spiritual reality uniting you to Christ. And that spiritual reality is symbolized with the physical reality of being immersed into water in the name of Christ, in the name of the Father, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, Galatians 3.26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So we have this same baptism. And then ultimately, he says, if you look at verse 6, there's one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all is that we ultimately arrive at this knowledge of God. And that's the Christian life ultimately. John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That is, that right there is not only what unites us together, but that's really the end game of your discipleship, is to, is to come to the knowledge of God. Because when you know God, when you've met the maker, then you can navigate everything that he's made in your life. And that becomes also the fuel for your life is knowing him. Not just ethereally, I mean intimately. When you come to this place where you know God, you love God, and you love his sovereign rule over the universe. You spend time with God. And you worship God as we read in Psalm 66. When the praises of God just pour out of your chest, you fall down on your knees on the floor in your bedroom in prayer as you realize your sin before him and his wonderful grace. That's when you can know God. And that knowledge of God, when you come together, creates that dynamism in a church. When you have people that are coming together, not just because they're playing church, but because they said, I have encountered the living God, and you have too. And let's talk about it. People that have encountered God can't stop talking about it. The best evangelists are the people who spend time with God. How do you learn to evangelize? Spend time with God. It will overflow from your life, I promise you. And that's the atmosphere of the church. Do you see how catalytic that is? That's dynamite right there. And you get that shared experience together it's like those things that happen on the 4th of July where somebody accidentally drops a, a match in the firework bucket. I mean, things just start happening. 
and the Holy Spirit starts working, and, and, and things start going off, and the work of God starts happening. Now, here's how God carries out this work. So important to understand. Here's how the Lord carries out this work. Look at verse 7. He carries out this work by giving individual members in the body spiritual gifts. Verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Circle that word grace. It's the Greek word charis. It just means gift. We think of grace as salvation, right? For by grace you have been saved. And of course, salvation is a gift. But that, he's not talking about salvation here. He's talking about a spiritual gift. That each Christian is given, given a gift, a spiritual gift. Uh, and this gift is given to each one of us out of this fullness of this measure of Christ's gift. And he explains this. Look at verse 8. He quotes Psalm 68. He says, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he's talking about Jesus' ascension to the right hand of the Father. He says, he led host of captives. Those are um, you and me. That's those that he purchased at the cross. He, he conquered the demonic realm and he purchased people and then it says he gave gifts to men. It's the picture of a conquering ruler. If a Roman general goes out and he conquers an army, what he would do is he would take all the spoil. And when he marched back into Rome, he would start giving that spoil away. And he said, look, this is evidence of my victory. Take part in the spoil of the Egyptians, whatever. Take part in the spoil. And that image is taken, and when Christ ascends into heaven, he says, part of this victory lap is I am going to give these spiritual gifts to my people. I am going to lavish on them the spoils of my triumphant victory. How did Christ achieve this? If you look at verse 9, he talks about, and saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended? Talking about the incarnation. He came, he took on our flesh, he lived a perfect life, he says, in the lower regions, that's earth, in the earth. And he says, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. When Jesus was on the earth, carrying out his ministry, he did it, remember at John's baptism, the Holy Spirit came down upon him in the form of a dove, and he carried out his entire ministry in the power and unction of the Holy Spirit. And when he ascends into heaven, he gives, remember, the promised Holy Spirit to his body, and now we fulfill his ministry of the kingdom in the power of the same Holy Spirit that was upon him throughout his ministry. And he gives his body various gifts to do this. Now, these gifts are outlined here, Ephesians 4, Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12. Let me just give you a few examples. There's the gift of service. There's the gift of teaching. There's the gift of exhortation and preaching. There's the gift of generosity and giving. There's the gift of leadership, the gift of mercy, the gift of wisdom, the gift of faith, the gift of discernment. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 12, 4, there is a variety of gifts in the same spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 12, all these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually. So every single Christian receives one or more spiritual gifts. And no Christian is the same as somebody else. No Christian in the history of the church is gifted in the exact same way as anyone else. Sometimes God gives multiple spiritual gifts to you in varying degrees. Think of it like a snowflake. I'm not saying you don't want to be a snowflake, Think of it like a snowflake, right? 
no snowflake is exactly like any other snowflake. And that's how your gifting is. You might have the gift of teaching, but it might be towards students. Or somebody else might have the gift of teaching. They couldn't keep a student's attention to save their life. Somebody else might have the gift of teaching women. Somebody else might have the gift of teaching children, which is very difficult. Just because you have the gift of teaching doesn't mean you can step into Adventure Club and teach children. It's very challenging. You're just speaking pictures and with candy and all sorts of things. But God gives you these amazing gifts, and your responsibility then is to use those gifts for the building up of the body, that you have this responsibility to, to use your gift to edify other members of the body. And when you start doing that, your Christian growth begins to go like this. You have this attitude, bearing with one another. I'm, I'm humble. I, I'm, I'm immersed in this unity. And now I'm using my spiritual gifts for the edification of the body. And people are using their spiritual gifts for my edification. It, it's a glorious thing what he's describing. Now, if we're all snowflakes, what do you have if you have a bunch of snowflakes? You have a blizzard, right? You have craziness. So this all needs to be organized so that we're all moving the same direction and doing the right thing. And this is the organizing principle for how this works. Verse 11, and he, Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Now these first two offices, I believe, passed away when the New Testament was finished when John penned Revelation in, in the, the 8090s. There were no more apostles once he died, no more prophets, because the written word of God at that point was completed. But you remember, Jesus told Peter, he said, you are Petros, and upon this rock I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not stand against it. To you belong the keys of the kingdom. The apostles were the ones who set the foundation. The apostles were the ones who put the church into order. And the prophets, like James, the brother of Jesus, and Jude, and, and others like that, came along the apostles and were also used by Christ to set the church into order. And they trained men like Timothy and Titus and Barnabas, who were evangelists. An evangelist is somebody that has a wider ministry of the gospel. Think of a D.L. Moody, for example. Somebody that is able to preach the truth of the gospel on a wider scale and be involved in the planning of churches. And then you have this last office. I think it's one office, shepherd teachers, pastor teachers. And these are those, those men that are called to teach the word of God in the local church. Now, notice verse 12. Verse 12 might be one of the most important verses for the life of the church that you can understand because it's so overlooked and forgotten, maligned, and just completely butchered. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Notice what he's saying here. He's saying it's the responsibility of the evangelists, the pastor teachers now, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Who does the ministry? You do the ministry. You do the ministry. The word is diakonia, where we get our word deacon. The deacons are to embody this ministry. But we are all to do the work of ministry. Each and every one of us. We are all to have this work. We are all to be involved in a construction project. Look at that last prepositional pr phrase in verse 12. For building up the body of Christ. That word, building up, means to construct. He says you are to be involved in constructing the body of Christ. That you are to be working, laboring with your spiritual gift for the building up of this church. 
And it's my job, it's the job of the elders to equip you to do that through teaching the Word of God. That's how it's to work. You are to have this service. So Paul says, 1 Corinthians 14, 12, strive to excel in building up the church. Romans 15, 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up, to, to, to build them up into the full stature of Christ. So the application of this, and, and listen very clearly, is that no one is to be sitting on the bench. Everyone that is a member of this church is to have a ministry in this church. You're not going to grow if you're a spectator. If you're punching a ticket and saying, look, I'll show up and I'll listen, that's all well and good, but you are not going to grow until you step into the game and you say, I am going to begin to serve. When Grace Church, which is where MacArthur pastors, when it blew up in the 70s, Moody Monthly did an article on the church. And the article was titled, The Church with 800 Ministers. Because when, when the editor and the, the person who wrote the article went out to the church, he, they were just blown away because everybody served. Everybody served. Everybody served. And they didn't just serve with a scowl on their face. They did it with those qualities that we saw earlier. With love, with gentleness, and humility, and all those things. And they were using their spiritual gifts. And th that right there is the New Testament dynamism. That's when things start to happen. When you do that, then you get the maturity. Look at verse 13. This is where you arrive at where we began. We began by talking about growing up into this stature, into this mature believer. But we have to do this together, right? We have to become the Quantico of churches. We have to become the Gold's Gym of churches. We have to do this together. There's not going to be individuals that walk across the parade deck. We are going to do this all of us, together, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, till we reach that stature, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's, that's our objective. That's where we want to go. So what does maturity look like? Here's what it looks like. First is that the individual members of the body begin to have what's called discernment. Discernment is not just knowing right from wrong, but right from almost right. In America, American Christianity is dying from a lack of discernment. Look at this, verse 14. So that we may no longer be children. There it is. We're, we're grown up now. Children are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. They're carried about by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. You, you can see through those because you've arrived at a level of maturity. You become a disciple maker, not just somebody who's discipled. Look at verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. You become able to speak the truth in love. Do you know the truth so that you can speak the truth into someone's life in love? That's important. You're not just banging the Bible over people's heads. It's in love. It's in love. It has to be in love. If it's not in love, it's not of Christ. There's, there's, there's truth people who aren't Christ people because theology to them is cold and callous. If it's not in love, it's not of Christ. But it's the wedding together of truth and love. And you're able to speak that truth in love into people's life in the church. And then you arrive at this place of being this remarkable church. That's verse 16. From whom the whole body, the whole body, that's all of us, 
joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part, each part of the body is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up, there it is again, in love, in Christ. So when each member of the body begins to do their part, then the body begins to grow, and that dynamism happens. Yeah, we're going to do discipleship ministries galore. We're, we're going to do them galore. But it's all going to be in the context of this. And it's all going to be part of this unity and people using their spiritual gifts. And we are going to push through to becoming a mature church. Are you ready for this? It's going to be hard. Are you ready to get up in the mornings on Sunday and say, we are going to go and serve and we are going to bear with one another? Are you ready for that? Are, are you ready to say, look, I, I'm, I'm going to get off the sidelines, I'm going to get up there with the kids, and I'm going to teach those children the truth of God's word, and I'm going to do it diligently, day in and day out, so that way when those kids are 30 years old, they will never forget the truth that they learned about who Christ is, who God is. It's time to get in the game. It's time for all of us to be in the game. And when we do this, we will grow into this mature body, into this mature church. Now, I think Kenny put a, um, a link in the bulletin where you can do just that, where you can put this into shoe leather and you can sign up to serve. And I, I would like you to prayerfully consider how you can serve, how you can get off the sidelines, get off the bleachers, into the life of this body. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.